0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. Leukemia is cancer of the body's blood forming tissues, including the bone marrow and the lymphatic system. Usually, white blood cells are potent infection fighters. But in people with leukemia, the bone marrow produces abnormal white blood cells, which don't function properly. Many types of leukemia exist, and some forms of leukemia are more common in children. On today's program, we'll discuss childhood leukemia with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, what is chronic cough and how can can It Be Treated? And the important role of patient navigators at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, helping patients and their families deal with a cancer diagnosis. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm
3: Tracy McCrae. Leukemia is the most common childhood cancer. It makes up about one-third of all cancers in the pediatric population. In the United States, about 3,500 children are diagnosed with leukemia each year. Leukemia is a cancer of the blood-forming tissues of the body, including the bone marrow and the lymphatic system.
2: That's correct. And leukemia starts in the soft inner part of the bones called the bone marrow. And any of the cells inside your bone marrow can turn into cancer. And once that happens, the cell reproduces to form lots of new cancer cells. And the bone marrow ultimately gets overwhelmed, and the cancer cells can spill out into the bloodstream and spread to other organs, unfortunately. Well, joining us in the studio to talk about leukemia in children is Mayo Clinic Pediatric Oncologist, Dr. Shakila Khan. Dr. Khan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. You know, it's a bit upsetting when any child gets cancer, uh, but I think a lot of us didn't realize that leukemia is more common than any other cancer in children.
4: Yes, actually, it's the most common, followed by brain tumors. Those are the two most common causes of cancer in children. And of the leukemia, what we call acute lymphoblastic leukemia or lymphocytic leukemia, is more common than the other types of leukemia.
2: Do we have any idea how this starts or why a child gets it?
4: There is a lot of research ongoing about the cause, but basically what happens is as you pointed out, it starts in the bone marrow. It's a defect in your stem cell which differentiates into the different, you know, blood types. And these cells when they become abnormal, then they divide, multiply, and cause an abnormal clone or population.
2: So a cell gone bad. Now, stem Mm -hmm. cells uh, produce white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets. Yes. So, and you can get leukemia involving any of those types of stem cells. There are a couple of types of stem cells?
4: There's one type, the basic stem cell, but it differentiates into the different uh, types of uh, blood cells. To give you an example, there is something with the red cells called erythroleukemia. And there are some disorders of platelets which are separate. In the white cells, when they become abnormal, they either are lymphoblastic, which is a type of white cells, or myeloblasts, which are the other types of. White cells, and those are the two main types of leukemia.
2: So, if it's lymphoblastic, it involves the production of white cells, and if it's myeloblastic, those are the cells that produce the platelets and the red blood cells? No. no?
4: Another type of white cells.
2: Oh, another type. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, that's how you classify it, either mm-hmm. lymphoblastic or myeloblastic? Myeloblastic. And then you also class, subclassify it an acute or chronic. What does that mean?
4: So, acute leukemia is something which happens very suddenly and very rapidly, and that's the one we see mostly in children. There are chronic types of leukemias. To give you an example, there is a chronic myeloid leukemia and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. We never see CLL in children. It's an adult disorder, and it goes on for years, so it's really very chronic. CML is a little more aggressive than CLL, but now with... uh, The advent of, I don't know if you've heard of GLEVAC, Imatinib, which are TKI, uh, you know, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. People can live. New kinds of chemo. Yep. People can live for years on that.
2: So the most common type to affect children is ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia. Yes. And then the second most common is AML, another acute form, but this time myeloblastic or myelocytic leukemia.
3: Absolutely. When it comes to leukemia, um, so often you hear people, especially when it comes to leukemia in children, say, well, it's the good kind to have, or and it's the really bad kind to have. As the pediatric oncologist, do you look at any kind of leukemia as the good kind or the bad kind? Yes, we
4: go in and tell the parents that we have bad news. Your child has leukemia. But the good news is that it's very curable. And we have come a long way in stratifying the risk factors for our leukemia. So we now have low risk, standard risk, high risk, and very high risk leukemia uh, stratification in ALL. And the treatment is tailored accordingly.
2: And what's the average age of child that you see?
4: You can see any age from infants To actually young adults, but the average age is between two and ten years.
3: What are the symptoms of a majority? Right, and because they're so
2: small, I'm, yeah, how do you, why do the parents bring them in?
3: Mostly fevers,
4: sometimes pain in the bones, the kids refuse to walk, um, bleeding or bruising because the platelets are low. So what happens is the leukemia cells, you know expand into the bone marrow, so they got rid, get rid of the normal cells. So that's why you have anemia. You know, your hemoglobin can be very low, and your platelets can be very low. So all those symptoms come in. They have liver and kidney issues,
3: too, because of the high leukemia burden. Because they're kids, and they don't know to pay attention, how, do you have any idea of how long the child has likely had leukemia before they get sick enough? That their parents bring them in?
4: Not very long, because the parents usually are feeling very guilty about it, and we try to tell them that it's not their fault, and it was something which happened, but it progresses pretty rapidly. So I wouldn't say six months ago
3: that the child had leukemia. And is that the same in adults, or is that more in children that it progresses that quickly? And I think in adults also, acute leukemias are the
2: same. Okay. You didn't used to be able to say to the parents, did you, uh, the prognosis is good and this is almost certainly curable? I mean, how long has it been that you've been able to say that to parents? You know,
4: I think about maybe 20 years plus because I had a great nurse practitioner here uh, who actually said that we used to have a diagnosis of leukemia and prepare the kids' uh, parents for the funeral of their child, and we have come a long way. I mean, we, uh, ALL, standard risk, 95%, uh, low risk, 95% survival, standard is about 90. High risk is still,
3: we have to work on that, but still it's about 70. That's what I was going to say. In the 70s and 80s, it was, if if a child had leukemia, that was just the end of it. But that So what has changed?
4: The parents who had children with leukemia, participated in a lot of clinical trials and helped us get to where we are at. That's amazing.
2: Now, you said uh, a little bit earlier that you're learning more about the risk factors for Mm -hmm. leukemia. What are those?
4: When we gave the treatment, which so treatment is very variable. It's six months of very intense chemotherapy, and the first part is called induction, where you try to bring them in remission. We used to do a bone marrow at the end of treatment and look for... Just the leukemia cells, you know, in the bone marrow. Now we have something called MRD, which is minimum residual disease based on molecular testing. So if you have positive MRD, you become high risk. But if you have negative MRD at the end of induction, that's a very good sign. So I think we, have, we are making a lot of progress in treating leukemias.
2: Oh, yeah. It sounds like it. And it sounds like it's become quite sophisticated, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our it guest is an expert on childhood leukemia, Dr. Shakila Khan. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about how they actually make the diagnosis in a child and more about treatment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Our guest is an expert on childhood leukemia, Dr. Shakila Khan. We've learned the fact that there are about 3,500 cases of leukemia in the United States every year. The most common is ALL, or acute lymphocytic leukemia. We've also touched on the fact that the prognosis is so much better than it used to be. Tell us how you make the diagnosis. The parents bring the child in. You said the most common symptoms being fever, fever, malaise, pain. When they come to you, um, how do you make the diagnosis? We do
4: something, what we call a complete blood count, a peripheral smear, where we look under the microscope to see the cells. And a lot of times that tells us what's going on. So you can actually see the
2: cancer cells?
4: Yes, you can. Well, if, because if they have blasts in their peripheral blood, that means their bone marrow is packed with leukemia cells. So if, say, they come with a very high white counts, we send it for a test called flow cytometry, and get the diagnosis done. So At why would time, the
2: white count be, be high? I would think it, it, it would be low if your bone marrow isn't producing what it should.
4: It can present in both ways. Mm-hmm. You can have very low counts, and you can have very high counts because the leukemia burden is so high that you see them in the peripheral blood. If you have a white count of greater than 50,000, that means that you are very, very high risk. And,
2: and normal would be, what, eight to 10,000? Yep. Your really high blood count means you're at higher risk for yes. not being surviving this disease?
4: No. That actually tells us that when we start the treatment, if you have a very high white count, you can get into trouble with renal failure, things like that. So kidney we have failure. Kidney yep. failure. So we actually try to f- help and do make uh, you know give them fluids give them some medications to try to prevent that so
3: let's move on to treatment then uh, because children are growing do they tolerate treatment actually that's why I do pediatric oncology <laughs> I would never
4: take care of adults
3: <laughs> kids are very resilient
2: so yes, in other words they don't have heart or lung diseases. Yeah, exactly yeah, that's a good thing. well so- and
3: they don't know you know if, you, if you're an adult and Here's how I felt for you know the last twenty five or thirty years. A kid doesn't know. A kid just knows I want to start playing again. We see a lot more issues with young adults because they can think mm-hmm. up through
4: these things. So worry, yep, yeah. and worry. A yeah. mind actually is very important. If you have a positive attitude, it makes a big difference.
2: <laughs> so is chemotherapy uh, still the mainstay <clears throat> of treatment? Yes, it is. And you have newer, better agents. Is that why the survival is better?
4: Actually, most of the drugs have been around for a long time. The standard treatment for leukemia, we use standard drugs like vincristine, steroids, asparaginase, doxorubicin. But we do have new drugs for patients who relapse. And we have new modalities for the patients who relapse. Because, you know, even when I say we have 80% are cured, there's 20% who will relapse. So, So we are getting better at that, too. And... I do stem cell transplants, so that is one option. But we don't do upfront transplants for ALL and even for AML now uh, because we have all these uh, good outcomes with the
3: regimens we use. I'm thinking a lot about what you said in the first segment about the parents, uh, Like that the prognosis is so much better and the outcomes are so much better now because of the parents who said yes to some trials. Uh, That really uh, impresses me. Can you expand a little bit about that so that people understand what those parents went through and what it meant? Yes. So
4: even now, we have ongoing clinical trials to do better. And I'm always impressed with our parents because when they come, they are overwhelmed. And then we bring all this information to them about this uh, regimen we are trying to see if we can do better and things like that and go over a 50-page consent form which is required by, you know, the IRB and FDA. And I'm always impressed that they, I've never had a parent, a couple may have felt uncomfortable. Everybody signs that up. You know why? Because they have realized that there were a lot of kids before them and there'll be a lot of kids after
3: them who will benefit from
4: it. So... I think our parents are amazing in that way. It's,
3: it's selfless. I mean, if your child has been diagnosed to be able to say, yes, let's give this a try, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yes, it is.
2: So you said that uh, you start with chemotherapy in all of these children, but sometimes when they relapse, you use other modalities. One was a stem cell transplant. Explain it to us what that is.
4: So what happens is we, the treatment, let's go over the treatment for acute leukemia, ALL. It's actually two years of treatment for girls, and three years for boys. We know from all these trials that that's what they need. Six months are very intense. And then we have what we call maintenance chemotherapy. And if you see a child at that time, you won't even know they have leukemia mm-hmm. because they are normal. They are leading normal life. They come once a month to get some chemotherapy. And every three months, we do a spinal tap and for prevention because mm-hmm. spinal fluid... Uh, is a sanctuary. See, uh, you know, nervous system is a sanctuary, and testes are a sanctuary for leukemia cells, and we know that from experience, so we do preventive things to prevent that. And that's why I think boys need a little longer treatment. Although now, in standard risk, they are trying out that boys and girls would have equal treatment. So we are It is evolving. But so far, the standard was that two years for girls and three years for boys. All total right, and the stem
2: cell transplant, you reserve for <clears throat> recurrence.
4: Stem cell transplant is rec- uh, reserved for recurrence. If you und- you fail induction, that you cannot go into remission, you have very high-risk features, like, for example, Philadelphia positive ALL, which is a type of chromosome abnormality. So th- it is reserved for very high-risk patients.
2: And what is a stem cell transplant?
4: So a stem cell transplant, what we do is as I told you before, that this is a defect in the stem cell. So we would um, we basically replace it with a normal stem cell from another donor. So in leukemia, there is no concept of giving your own cells back. You have to have an alternate donor, like a mad sibling
2: okay.
4: or an unrelated donor. And now we are actually looking at haploidentical transplants, means a parent- or a sibling who is not a match can be a donor too. So so basically what you're going to do is you're going to wipe out the recipient's immune system.
2: And you do that with chemo?
4: Chemo and radiation
2: okay. sometimes.
4: And we then give them the new marrow. And that process is the hard process. You can get infections. It's, it is, it uh, is you know, a life-threatening Um <clears throat> procedure. So that's why it's not done on everybody, and it's only done when it's indicated. And then the new stem cell takes up and uh, has new cells, and that's when we say that the patient has engrafted when they, their bone marrow starts working again.
2: And when that stem cell <coughs> transplant is a blood transplant, a blood transfusion. It's, it's, like it's not an tra- injection of cells into their own marrow. No,
4: it is, like, it is given like a blood transfusion.
2: All right, overall survival? You said it's really good. What is it now in, let's say, ALL?
4: In ALL, as I said, depending on the risk factor, it's, uh, you know, between, I would say, 70 to 95. Wow.
2: And AML, acute myelocytic leukemia, Myeloid, not quite as good? I think
4: it's about 65, 60, 65,
2: All right. Leukemia in children, fortunately, fairly rare, but still there are 3,500 cases per year in the United States. It's potentially devastating, obviously, for the child and, of course, for their parents. But there are new, lots of new, better ways to treat this, including a stem cell transplant and, fair to say, the prognosis better than ever. Right, Dr. Collins? Yes, it is. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: You're welcome. Happy to be here. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about treatment for chronic cough and the role of a patient
2: navigator at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, we've all had a cough at one time or another. Hopefully not now. But (laughs) for some people, the cough doesn't stop. And if it lasts for eight weeks or longer in adults and four weeks or longer in children, it's called a chronic cough.
3: Also, a pain yeah. if that happens. No yeah, no fun. And it's more than just an annoyance. It can interrupt your sleep and leave you exhausted. And in severe cases, it can cause vomiting, lightheadedness, and even rib fractures. Oh. hello. <laughs> Here to tell us more what causes a chronic cough and what can be done about it is Mayo Clinic pulmonologist, that's a lung specialist, Dr. Kaiser
2: Lim. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Lim, good to have you.
0: I guess the first question is why do we cough? So cough is a defensive reflex. If you think about it, we're bipeds and we're upright. So the way we handle food, it's a 90-degree turn into the esophagus. So cough has evolved for us to protect our airways. If you harken back to 150 years ago, when people die of pneumonia, they essentially drown in their own mucus. So cough is geared to clear our respiratory tract of particulate materials like food, mucus, that would be our natural defense, and noxious gases, so that our alveolar sacs, where the oxygen extraction takes place, isn't harmed.
2: Well, I know that uh, sometimes a cough doesn't go away, and I would assume the most common reason is tobacco.
0: So... A smoker's cough is always a challenge, but there's also a large segment of the public wherein after you exclude active smoking, they would still have this persistent cough. The irony is that... People with smokers' cough you usually don't come to our clinic because <laughs> yeah. they they immediately they know, know why they cough. Yes, and, yeah. Yeah. and they know how to stop it.
3: So when yeah. uh, if we take the smokers out of the equation, how many, how often does it happen that someone has a chronic cough that they just can't get rid of?
0: It's uh, common enough. The one of the statistics cites something like twenty six million ambulatory visits for mm-hmm. cough. And of that percentage, a large number would be chronic cough. We, we have a large population of chronic cough patients. We have over 3,500 patients a year. No kidding. And what are the common causes yeah. other than tobacco?
3: It's got to be allergies. I'm going to take a guess
0: at allergies. So if you think about cough as the bark of a dog, and the dog is your voice box and your respiratory tract, it's signaling you that there's something irritating. So things like post-nasal drip. Reflux, inflammation of the airways as well as the alveolar sac can all lead to cough.
2: Now, the alveolar sac are the little sacs at the end that yes. exchange oxygen. Yes. With so the
0: air. there's a an entity called interstitial lung disease, wherein cough may predate the diagnosis by as much as eight months.
2: And you said reflux. Explain that.
0: How does reflux cause you to cough? So reflux is a phenomenon. Think about. Uh, the burping reflex. So reflux is when abdominal stomach uh, juices back up. And it depends on how high they get. They could irritate the lining of the esophagus. They can also go all the way up into the pharynx or the throat area. You have the acid and the non-acid elements which can cause damage to the lining of your voice box and cause irritation.
3: If you determine... uh to, to figure out if it's a chronic cough, how is it diagnosed? Just count up on your fingers the number of days you've had a cough and then you're chronic?
0: So the American College of Chest Physicians and a lot of the national guidelines have established that a cough that lingers for more than eight weeks falls into the category of, of chronic cough. And this is an important designation because like right now, how do you know it's not influenza? How do you know it's not the coronavirus? The eight weeks and the persistence beyond that tells you that it's in a different category and comes with it its own set of differential diagnoses.
2: Now, I assume in a non-smoker, it's important for you to determine the cause before you initiate any kind of treatment. How do you do that? How do you determine the actual cause?
0: So the approach unfortunately, is a systematic elimination of possibilities. There isn't a cough meter to plug the patient in. It's a systematic elimination of, of possible diseases, and that's where the frustration is. So if you were in primary care, first thing you would do is to, to do two things. Get a chest x-ray, make sure that there's, there's nothing going on, like cancer, like a pneumonia. Second thing is to make sure that the patient isn't taking a common antihypertensive, which is associated with up to 20, 24% of uh, chronic cough for those who take this medication. ACE inhibitors? Is yes. That what, okay. Part of the challenge is then, how do you systematically approach it? And this is where the history comes in, wherein you have to ask and inquire about disease states.
3: Can you uh,
5: have a habit of
3: coughing?
0: <clears throat> We try not to use that term because you may not realize how much negative emotion goes into that term because people will look at somebody suffering from chronic cough and say it's all in your head and it discounts their suffering and the burden of disease and it's as if the habit is something that you have acquired to get attention and it's a totally unfair statement. So. Personally, in our clinic, we try not to use that term.
2: We talked about some of the complications, including rib fractures, but having a chronic cough can really interfere with someone's lifestyle, can it?
0: We looked at patient-perceived burden of disease, and we were very surprised in the early 2000s when we found out how much people were suffering. So people would cough, and they would have rib fractures, and rib fractures are very hard to diagnose with cough. Because it's not displaced. It takes three weeks before the callus starts to form and that's when the chest x-ray becomes abnormal. There's actually a Mayo Clinic proceeding publication on a cough-induced fractures.
2: Wow. Pretty amazing. And that's painful.
0: Lasts for weeks. Yeah. Oh.
2: And makes it even harder to cough. But yes. Painful when you cough. <laughs> what is the how do you treat a chronic cough?
0: So first thing you do is you go through a systematic evaluation. Do they have post-nasal drip? Do they have reflux? Do they have asthma? Do they have a condition called eosynflict bronchitis? Depending on what the chest x-ray shows, do you need a CT scan to find out whether they have sarcoidosis, bronchiectasis? We've picked up rare diseases like vasculitis what we, that leads to subglottic stenosis. We've also picked up things like giant cell arteritis, wherein the manifestation would just be cough. And the more prosaic, you know, post-nasal drip and reflux.
2: You have to be a pretty adept diagnostician to figure this out because you've named a myriad of diseases <laughs> that could potentially cause a chronic
0: cough. That's why the, the cough approach is an interdisciplinary one. So I work very closely with the esophageal group. And in close collaboration with the three rhinologist surgeons that we have in ENT. Nose
2: nose surgeons, yeah.
0: Yeah. We also work with the throat uh, specialists. There are two of them here at uh, Mayo Rochester. And we also work with the allergies. I'm a board-certified allergist myself. So you have a cross-section of several subspecialties coming together to serve the patient. And we also have urogynecology, by the way.
3: Oh, to, yeah, uh, you're going to need that because if you cough too much.
2: <clears throat> yeah, we know what happens. <laughs> so one last quick question. Cough suppressants, pre- suppressants over-the-counter, do they work? They don't. All right. That's a simple answer. Chronic <laughs> <laughs> cough, a cough that doesn't quit. There are multiple causes, and the cough itself can cause a variety of problems. There is treatment, but determining the underlying cause, absolutely crucial.
3: Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Lung Specialist, Dr. Kaiser Lim. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dr. Lim.
3: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn how patient navigators can help you and your family
2: during
1: cancer treatment.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, if you've just been diagnosed with cancer, it can be a difficult and confusing time, not just <laughs> for you, but for your family. It really has to be one of the most stressful moments in people's lives. And I know, Tracy, you've been there, but you were young. Yeah. But do you remember oh, the certainly. day they told you you had cancer? Yes. Do I you was, remember what...
3: I was 19, yep. and my I remember never... Having seen my parents react or act the way that they were acting when we all learned that news, so yeah, it was def- definitely a big
2: moment in my life. Did you have any inkling that you might have cancer
3: uh, before they told you? The doctor in my hometown said, "I think you're sicker than the average bear." <laughs> and when we <laughs> heard, "Never good news," when we heard that, then that's when I knew it might be a little bit different. Yes. Uh, At Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, there are people who can help, however, and I did not have access to people like this. And so I'm really excited to talk to these patient navigators. That's what they're called. And what do they do? How can they help? We're going to find out today. Joining us in studio are two patient navigators, Jerry Lensing and Angela Young. Welcome to the program, both of you.
6: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Good to have you both here. Now, I know you uh, work in the cancer center, but I honestly never knew that there were people called patient navigators. So tell us what you do.
5: Well, our our job is rather all-encompassing. We have individuals that come in and they want basic information, but then we have those that are either newly diagnosed or have been um, dealing with the treatment process for a number of years. So everything is different every day. Um, in terms of what their needs are and what what we can supply for them.
3: When a person comes in uh, and has just been diagnosed um, upstairs, they tell them, come down and see the people in the the lobby in the cancer center, Um, go meet a patient navigator. When they come walking in, what do they say to you, Angela? What is that first appointment or that first, it's not appointment, but that first time like?
6: Yeah, so we really just kind of meet the patient and family where they're at. It might be just needing some additional information about their diagnosis. Many times we're um, meeting patients at a very vulnerable time where they find out maybe they need to stay at Mayo Clinic for extended periods of time for treatment or trying to manage maybe coming back and forth um, from home to Mayo Clinic intermittently for treatment and how are they going to manage that financially Um all the things that go with um, distance uh, treatment, distance from a treatment facility. So we really work with them individually to figure out what is their treatment plan and what can we do to help them along the way.
3: Jerry, I would imagine mostly um, everyone has to kind of go through the seven stages of grief That's what I've told people. My family certainly went through that. Would you say that that's right?
5: I think that's true. I just don't think that people really realize that that's what the process is. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk about the new normal. Today is what today is and you deal with today. Work through what you have to deal with today and don't make big plans, but just know it's a process.
2: And I am sure that most patients and their families, after they hear the word cancer from their physician or health care provider, they forget everything else that's been said. I mean you must get a thousand questions when patients come down to see you, some of which had already been answered, but they have forgotten.
5: Oh, numerous times. And I think the one of the bigger issues is understanding the whole staging process you know um they may come come in and think they have liver cancer when in fact it may be started someplace else and it was a different primary so just explaining that and using different um examples to help them understand that process and what that means.
2: And it's very interesting, is it? Because it's very confusing for patients because we talk about grade and we talk about stage. And Mm -hmm. grade has to do with what the tumor looks like under the microscope, how aggressive it is, how fast it grows. Uh, and stage has to do with where the cancer is located whether it's still localized in whatever organ or if it has spread elsewhere and how far it's spread very difficult concept for patients to understand and it's so good to hear that you help them with that
5: yeah we we do our best it's it can be a mystery and you may get that question from that same person five different ways but you know it's important to provide the support that they need and explain the way that they understand and have them explain back to you what they understand so you know you've gotten the message to them
2: and let's face it sometimes physicians don't explain it very well <laughs> I, I would just say
3: <laughs> that uh you know if for you um, for any of the other physicians it's just a different way to look at what is happening to this patient's life um, and i did not appreciate uh, how much a caregiver needed support, again, because I was 19. So I didn't think about my parents or my siblings at all. How do you help the caregivers or the immediate family, Angela?
6: Well, interestingly enough, I would say the majority of the people that visit us in the Cancer Education Center are the caregivers. Sure. They are the family, the support people that are there with the patient, um, Not to say the patients don't come in, but they often find the closest chair just right in through the doors and sit down. It is the caregiver that tends to be that information seeker. They are the ones that are gonna wanna know more about what to expect, what things to anticipate, and when it is okay to reach out to the care teams and notify them of some new change. Um, So I would say we work very closely with caregivers and they are equally um, supported If not, probably more just because they are the ones reaching out to us.
3: Uh, I would like to think that all of the patients that might hear this would come to Mayo Clinic for their treatment, but the fact is, Did you know that we're heard on over 240 radio stations? So all across the country, people are listening to this right now. (laughs) Um, And I was not treated here at Mayo Clinic. I was up in Fargo. Um, What advice would you have for the patients who are listening, for family members who are listening, things that you have learned if they never get an opportunity to come to the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center and speak with you? um, What would you share with them, both of you? Jerry, why don't you go first?
5: Well, there are resources out there. I mean... If they've come here for a second opinion and they they want additional resources, we can certainly help them if their treatment is being taken care of at home or in their home area. We certainly do that. And we do get a number of phone calls into the center asking questions and that sort of thing. And we do our best to provide them with the resources that they may need.
2: So from anywhere, you would take a phone call?
5: Right. And we are very blessed in that we do have a patient navigator located in Arizona as well. And the goal is by the end of the year to have one placed in Florida. So we are in a couple key places on in the Mayo system. So yeah, we're here So someone
2: would call the main Mayo Clinic number and ask for the cancer center and ask to speak with a patient navigator? Is that how you would do it?
6: I would say that, or they happen to find the Cancer Education Center on the web, on the MayoClinic.org website, and then our phone number is published out there as well, and then that comes right into where Jerry and I sit.
3: Okay. All right, so Angela, what would you say to other folks who are across the country? Yeah,
6: so I would say if somebody is not able to come to Mayo Clinic, and feasibly that's a reality for many people, um, I would say it's okay to advocate for yourself, and as caregivers advocate for that patient, ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. If you're going to get on the internet and do some searching, make sure you're on the, the credible nonprofit organizations, you know, Um and and do your research on those credible websites, reach out to, you know, there's lots of patient advocate foundations out there that are there to help you as well. Mm -hmm. If you're not able to get in contact with a, a navigator, there are many people across the country in similar roles as Jerry and I. So I would say ask in your system that you're being treated, is there somebody that's there to help me that can be a patient advocate or somebody that can support us along the way?
2: What uh, do you help with virtually everything with regard to a, how a patient's life has changed because of cancer? For example, financial hardship. Can you, can you help with that, or direct them to someone who can?
6: So, a lot of times, what we're doing is we're we honestly we're meeting the patients where they're at when they come. Are their first need is. How am I going to pay for my hotel? I just found out I need to stay seven more days. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have the money for that because I just paid my mortgage back home, and now I'm here an extended period of time, and I'm not getting paid. So we're oftentimes working with them to get financial grants, get them connected to resources to help cover those expenses. We're fixing those immediate things right now. Um, A patient that stays at Mayo Clinic where we build that relationship, oftentimes we're looking more long-term to see what other programs and In community resources we can connect them to that can help them more long-term as well. Likewise, a patient that maybe is going home, we try our best to connect them to those kinds of resources so they have that same support back home as well.
5: Yeah, and we we try to encourage them to connect with us early in the treatment process because a lot of those organizations will not help you once treatment is completed. And I also indicate that if you're not capable. If you're not feeling up to it, assign it to a family member or someone that you trust that could oversee that part of your care. It's You're supposed to focus on getting better. You should spend your time getting better. And if you have someone that you trust that can take on that responsibility, by all means, share it with them because they're looking for a way to help you from the mouths of patient navigators.
3: <laughs> People <right>. who know. <laughs>
2: yeah. Patient navigators help patients who have been recently diagnosed with cancer. By the way, do you see most every cancer patient at the Mayo Clinic? You couldn't?
6: No, we don't. Just the ones that you it would you nice. are a referral service. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: so you uh, patients get referred to you from physicians or other healthcare providers.
6: Yeah. So we have physicians, nurse practitioners, their care team nurses. Mm -hmm. Uh, We work closely with social work at Mayo Clinic. And like Jerry mentioned, we do get a fair amount of phone calls coming in. So people that are looking to get a second opinion at Mayo Clinic, thinking ahead, how am I going to afford this? Where am I going to stay? When they get on the internet and they start looking at how much our hotels are in Rochester, that's frightening. So they call. What's your
3: phone number?
5: 507-266-9288
2: six nine two eight eight.
5: eight eight nine
2: two eight eight. All right. Well, you better get back to your office because you're going to get some <laughs> phone calls pretty soon. Patient navigators at the Mayo Clinic. What a great service at a difficult time in people's lives. Our thanks to patient navigators Jerry Lensing and Angelo Young. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure.
2: And that's our program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, thank you for listening.